Good morning, Miss Day. It is so good to be with you. Um, I, I recognize a lot of familiar faces, and some of you have greeted me warmly. Um, I, I was here, I, I was trying to remember, I think it was about four years ago that I came and preached here, and I've always sort of had a connection with your church and with Paul. Uh, I'm thankful for your story. I'm thankful for what God has done in this community and what God will do through this community. I'm thankful for that. I consider Paul a good friend. He's been a, a colleague for many years, but he's also just been a friend and an encourager for me. It was maybe just three or four weeks ago I sat with Paul uh, for coffee, and I just I wanted some advice from a brother in Christ, and he was so gracious and, and spoke some real truth and life into me. You have a good man as a pastor. I'm, I'm thankful for him. And I'm also thankful that you recognize as a church the value of giving him a sabbatical. So I've been in in pastoral ministry for seven years now, and there's been some seasons where I felt kind of weary. Pastoring is just a, a weird job where you're sort of on all the time. And to be able to have the faith to give him that season to rest and spiritually rejuvenate himself, um, that's a gift that you've given him. And I think that you're going to find as he comes back, he is recharged for the work uh, ahead of you. So I'm thankful for you guys. Um, before I do anything else, though, I'd like to just pause and pray. Can we do that? Uh, Father God, now as we are about to open your word, I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful that you have given us the words of life, the, the words of salvation. And I don't want us to take it lightly. God, these are precious words that you've given us. As we study this today, God, I pray that my words would be faithful to your word that I wouldn't stand in the way of anything that you have already said or will say through your word today. God, I pray that you give us attentive hearts to hear what you have to say, that you would encourage us where we need to be encouraged, that you would rebuke us where we need to be rebuked, that you would have your way with us today. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to invite you to stand for the reading of God's word, and this will be a short one. We've got one verse today. Can you handle this? One verse. You'll find this in Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is God's word. You can be seated. Um, So Paul sent me an email and, and said, hey, you can pick whatever you want to preach on, whatever text you want. And that's quite an invitation because there's a lot of verses in the Bible to choose. So I always try to just think, what is God saying to me right now? And uh, this verse has been resonating with me. Um, I, I've studied this verse somewhat recently. I preached on this verse about three or four months ago, and God has continued to kick me in the butt with this verse. And I figure it's best to speak out of my heart. Maybe it will connect with you guys. Uh, just Thursday night, I came home at 10 p.m. And I sat at the kitchen table and I told my wife, I am just really discouraged. I come from the gym. I play in a basketball league on Thursday nights in Orland Park. And I think I'm the only Christian on the, on the floor. There's about 25 guys or so that gather every Thursday night. And 
it's this beautiful opportunity. So many of them are kind of non-practicing Catholics or uh, non-religious, you know, just not identifying with anything. And they know that I'm a pastor. I don't think they know quite how to make sense of that with me yet, though. I'm, I'm an enigma to them. But I came home discouraged Thursday night because God has given me this opportunity with these 25 guys. I have relationship with them. I've, you know, I talk with them and we've, I've established some good rapport. But I recognized on Thursday as I came home, I'm just failing as a witness of Jesus with these guys. I love these guys. I want them to find the joy and salvation in Christ. But I've just missed the opportunity recently. I haven't turned the corner in the conversations. I haven't asked the intentional questions. I haven't taken them out for coffee. I've just missed it. I don't know if you've ever felt like that as a Christian. You felt like you've just missed it. You're not having the influence. You know that you're supposed to be witnesses to the world, and yet you're struggling. I wanted to start there because I want you to know that I struggle with the same thing. Every Christian probably does. I think every Christian knows that we're supposed to be witnesses, right? Do you know this? You know that we're supposed to share Jesus with others, right? Yeah, I know that too. Somehow it didn't connect on Thursday night. Reality is every Christian struggles in some capacity with this command of Jesus to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. And I would guess that for almost every one of us, there's one word that stands in the way of us living this out. Do you know what word I'm thinking of? Bingo. Fear. Why don't we share the gospel? It's fear. All kinds of fears. When I think about being a witness of Jesus, a lot of things kind of pop in my mind. One of the first things that comes to my mind is my college years on the campus of Northern Iowa University. A couple of times a year, this, this guy would show up at the student union. We called him Brother John. I don't actually know what his name was. And he would come and preach fire and brimstone and tell everyone they were going to hell. Everyone made fun of this guy. They thought he was weird. And I don't think anyone met Jesus through him. But that's one image that comes to my mind when I think about being a witness to Jesus. I, these negative experiences that I've had. Maybe it's the, the guy with the megaphone on downtown Chicago streets preaching fire and brimstone. We have these negative images. Maybe it's a Jehovah's Witness knocking on your door. Being a witness. Sometimes we have negative images of being a witness. And that's one of the things that maybe holds us back. We don't want to be perceived like those people. When it comes to sharing our faith, I think we tend, though we know we're supposed to, we tend to leave it to the pastors and to the missionaries to actually do that work. What I want to encourage you with today is that it doesn't have to be like that. It doesn't have to be this negative, fear-driven experience. It doesn't have to be something you're doing only because Jesus told you to and you really don't want to and you're gritting your teeth hoping it doesn't go badly. I want to give you a different picture today 
of what it could look like. A few years back, um, I was serving at Grace Church in Lansing, and I was the youth pastor. And God was really doing some amazing things with our high school ministry. And as the youth pastor, I knew that I'm supposed to share the gospel. And yet, even sometimes I had my own fears, even in youth group, of just really giving a clear altar call, a clear gospel presentation, and inviting people to respond. But one day, I felt very clear that God said, you need to give people an opportunity to respond, share the gospel, and give an altar call. And I did, though I was nervous, because I felt like even, you know, this is confessions of a pastor here, so I, what if nobody raises their hand? Did I fail? Did that look weird? And I was pretty convinced in my mind that no one was going to respond to the gospel that way. And I gave an impassioned plea. And to my surprise, as I gave people an opportunity to raise their hands, six high school students responded to the gospel who were not Christians as they walked through the doors that day. And it was a praise God moment. It was a humbling moment for me. It was the power of God. It wasn't anything I said. But what I'm captivated by was the fact that those six people, when they walked through the door, I didn't know them. They were invited by someone else from the youth group. Someone in our youth group had the courage to invite them to a night where they would hear the gospel and it changed their lives forever. Praise God. Now, why couldn't that be the case in your life and in mine? That the courage of those high school students to invite a friend, why couldn't that be you or me? With my guys at the gym, with your coworkers, with your neighbors. What if God just might do something you weren't expecting? What happened with those six students, as I think about how they were invited, they were invited because they had friendship with Christian students. It's what I would describe as missional friendship. Those high school students who, who were part of our youth group who loved Jesus, they loved their friends who were not believers, but they also cared about them enough to invite them somewhere they would hear the gospel. Missional friendship. That's the picture I want to present to you today. And I want you to think about what this could look like in your life. I want you to even get as detailed as thinking about who in your life can you missionally invest in with friendship. Here's the main point for today. You, 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 all of you, are called to be witnesses for Jesus in the midst of your ordinary life. So we're only looking at one verse today, but it is a verse that is powerful and it is packed with good stuff. What I'm intending to do today is to kind of break it down into two questions or two kind of categories. One is our call to be witnesses. What does it mean? What does it look like? Why does it matter? And then secondly, to get more practical, how do ordinary people like you and me actually live it out? I think we're going to see some really helpful things in this verse that can help us as we leave these doors today 
to live more intentionally with our missional friendships. So we're going to be really grounded in this verse. That's kind of how I preach as I'm really kind of going word by word, verse by verse, one verse today. But here's what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of go, go about it backwards. I'm going to start with the second half of this verse first, and then we're going to come back to the first half. Is that cool? All right. So the second half of the verse is going to address the question, um, what does it mean to be witnesses? Why are we to be witnesses? Okay, so it says, uh, you will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses. It doesn't leave a, a lot of wiggle room there. You might be my witnesses. May, perhaps you could be one of my witnesses. No, it's you will be my witnesses. It's very clear. So I want to think about what is a witness. Um, so on my way here today, I took Route 80, took uh, the exit on Highway 30. And as I took that exit, I see an 18-wheeler semi-truck on its side with cop cars all around it. Never seen the bottom side of an 18-wheeler before. It's pretty cool. Now, I didn't see it happen. I didn't see it roll over. He must have taken that exit way too fast. Uh, but perhaps someone did. Perhaps someone saw it happen. And they were a witness. They saw how that semi-truck flipped over. Now, if they were to be a witness, um, they may be asked to testify to what they saw. Think about a witness in court. Someone in court who's called to be a witness, their job is simply to tell the truth. What did they see? What did they hear? What did they experience? That's what we are called to do. We are called to be witnesses. We are simply called to speak the truth. What we have seen, what we've heard, what we know to be true. We are called to be witnesses for Jesus. Now, this verse did not say, you will be my preachers. It did not say, you will be on the Christian debate team. It said, you will be my witnesses. I think this is very freeing. You don't have to come up with these great words to say. You don't have to come up, read all the apologetics books by Ravi Zacharias or anything like that. All you need to do is be a witness. Speak the truth of what you have seen and heard and experienced in Jesus Christ. Isn't that freeing? That's beautifully freeing. Now, I want to think about the context here of, of this verse. So, this was Jesus speaking to his disciples. He's already been crucified. He's already risen. He's already appeared to 500 people who have seen him, who have touched his hands, his side, and his feet. They are actual eyewitnesses. They saw the risen Christ. This is also the very last moment before Jesus ascends to heaven. In fact, if you read the next verse, it says, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. So these are literally the last words of Jesus on earth. And they were witnesses. They saw it. I imagine they just witnessed, I mean, they just witnessed Jesus rising up to heaven before their very eyes, and Jesus just told them to go be witnesses. Well, 
to no surprise, they were. If you read the rest of Acts, if you read the rest of Christian history, those 11 disciples, of course, Judas at this point is dead, those 11 disciples went to the ends of the earth and they were witnesses to Jesus. They did it. None of them recanted. None of them changed the story under tremendous pressure, loss, even death. They remained witnesses to what they had seen, heard, and experienced in Jesus. Now, I am convinced that this verse is not just intended for those 11 disciples. It's intended for us. It's intended for all who have experienced, who have heard, who have been changed by Jesus. We're all witnesses. If you're a Christian here today, you have a story to tell. You are a witness to Jesus' work in your life, right? You've experienced the love, the joy, the forgiveness, the redemption, the salvation in Christ. I think about my life. Uh, 25 years ago, I met Jesus at a camp. My life changed. I think about who I was before I met Jesus, even as a teenager, and who I was after, and it was markedly different. Some of you have the same story, whether it was as a teen, as a younger child, or as an adult. You've been changed by Jesus. You have a story to tell. In fact, you have the greatest story to tell. You are witnesses. You have the story that the world is longing to hear. That there is hope that these seemingly meaningless days in life have hope, have purpose, have a savior. Sometimes I think about, um, like, what are some of the, the great woe moments that you've had in your life? Like, uh, this, this summer, my wife and I got to go to Mexico. We went to Chichen Itza. Do you know what this is? So it's the Mayan ruins, and it's one of the seven wonders of the world. I've actually seen two of the seven in my life. I've also seen the Great Pyramid of Giza in Egypt. And it was a woe moment. You stand there and, whoa. It's just to imagine before all the technology that they could have built this incredible pyramid. The rich history behind it. It, it was kind of a breathtaking moment. I don't know what woe moments you've had. Maybe it's a monument that you've seen. Maybe it's a person that you've met. Or uh, something that you've seen that was just incredible. A goofy one that I thought of recently as I was, my wife and I were watching this Penn and Teller show a couple days ago about magicians, you know. And it reminded me of this woe moment that I had in college where a couple of us guys were just kind of sitting around the dorm room playing, doing stupid card tricks to each other, you know, like really brainless, anyone can figure this out kind of card tricks. But it was fun, you know, we're college freshmen. And then one of the guys in the room, he leaves the room and he comes back a few minutes later with a sword, like a legit sword, okay? And he says, I've got a card trick for you. Dennis, pick a card. Pulls out the card. Okay, I, I picked one. Now put it back in the deck and don't show me what it was. Don't tell me what it was. And I do that, okay? The next thing I know, he throws the deck of cards in the air and the cards start scattering everywhere. And he takes the sword and he sticks it up in the air. And he pulls it back down, and there's a card stuck on the end of the, on, of the sword. He takes it off. Is this your card? 
I mean, we, were, we could not, it was the card. To this day, I have no idea how he did it. He did, never did another magic trick in all of his college years. It's like, what was that? It was a woe moment, right? I don't know what woe moments you've had, but I want to suggest to you that if you have met Jesus, you have a woe moment to talk about in your life. Let me ask another question. So we kind of talk about what is a witness, our call to be witnesses. Now I want to get to the question of why must we be witnesses? On one hand, it's a natural outflowing of an encounter with Jesus. Just like I can't help but tell about this sword woe moment trick. If you've met Jesus, you, you almost can't help but talk about what he's done in your life. If it's genuine, if it's real. But it's also important because simply the gospel saves. Without Jesus, we are dead in our sins. There is no hope for us eternally without Christ. Now, if you're a Christian here today, you are a Christian here today because someone was a witness to you. Maybe it was a parent. Maybe that was from a very young age. Maybe it was a camp counselor. Maybe it was a coworker or a neighbor or a friend, but someone courageously was a witness of Jesus to you, and it was the moment that captured your heart for Christ, and you are eternally different now. Aren't you thankful they were a witness? Boy, I am thankful for those camp counselors in my life that presented the gospel in a way that reached my heart. I'm so thankful. Everyone who's a Christian is a Christian because someone was a witness to them. Now, in some cases, it could be an author, but perhaps someone gave them the book. I'm sure all of us who have been walking with Jesus for a while know the Great Commission. You know these words of Jesus in Matthew 28? Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Most Christians know these verses. But I want us to think about what's at stake. What if we ignore Jesus' commands? What if we don't go make disciples? What if we are not witnesses to the ends of the earth? To our friends. To our basketball buddies. What if we don't? There is eternal consequences, right? Our obedience to Jesus in this command, it is a matter of life and death. Now, sometimes people wonder, why couldn't God just like, reveal himself to everybody so we don't have to go be witnesses? Couldn't God just come down and change people's hearts? Or couldn't Jesus just come back now and start knocking on doors himself? And of course, the answer is yes, God could make everyone believe. But that's not what he said in his word that he's going to do. Instead, he said that we will be witnesses. That we are the way that he is going to, to save those who will be saved. It's through us. There's no plan B that God gives us in this book. This is, we're it. That's a scary thought.
This is not just a job for the pastors and the missionaries. It's not what Jesus had in mind when he said, you will be my witnesses. Think of Ephesians 2.10. It says, "For, for you are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works that God prepared in advance for you to do. I think one of those good works that God has prepared you for is to be a witness, to talk about what Jesus has done in your life to others. talked about what is a witness. We talked about why it's important to be a, a witness. Let's talk about the question of where are we to be witnesses. So this verse, it gave us four locations. I don't know if you caught it. It's easy to just kind of glide by it. It gave us four locations. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, For the disciples, these were very specific areas. But I want us to think a little bit more broadly because I'm not sure all of us are called to Judea or Samaria. But let's think about this a little more broadly. What I see here is a pattern going from local to global. Let me start with the ends of the earth, the last one that Jesus says. The more global view of being witnesses. For the disciples, when they heard these words, that meant that they would go to distant lands, to the ends of the earth, to places unknown to them, and they would be witnesses. For some of them, that meant they went to Rome, to India, to Africa, unreached people, and they did. They went. And they were witnesses to Jesus, for Jesus. Now, for you and me, the ends of the earth, it can mean a lot of things. I think of Revelation 5, where where the Lord tells us that every nation and every tribe and tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Well, we're in a day where not every tribe and every tongue yet knows about our Savior Jesus. The work is not done. Revelation 5 cannot come until the work is done. I think about my aunt and uncle, Barb and Tom Needham. Grew up in rural farming Iowa. Met Jesus and felt called to go to the ends of the earth and be witnesses. My uncle Tom learned how to fly an airplane bought an airplane, and they flew to Cameroon, Africa, where they've been for the last 35 years, being witnesses to the Fulani people, a tribal bush people who don't know Jesus. They have learned the language. They have successfully translated the Bible into the Fulani people's language. They have built churches. They have raised up pastors. They have gone to the ends of the earth. They are my heroes. It's incredible. I can't imagine. They've done it. Now, most of you, that's not your call. Maybe it sounds glamorous. For most of you, that does not sound glamorous. But God does call some to the ends of the earth. And if God is calling you to the ends of the earth, then I would challenge you that you need to be faithful and you need to be courageous and trust him. Barb and Tom Needham will tell you that it was worth it. 
But most of us, our call is not to the ends of the earth. It's more regional or local. Second location that Jesus mentioned was Samaria. So Samaria was a place that was near Judea, but it was not part of Judea. It was culturally very different. We know about Samaria because of kind of the story of the Good Samaritan. Okay, that, that story is, is very compelling. Or Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman by the well. Those stories are compelling because Samaritans were outsiders. They were not culturally like the Jews. It was a foreign place in a lot of ways, even though it wasn't that far away. I think of this sort of like crossing cultural boundaries. We have our own Samarias here. Samarias are places that are not culturally familiar to you. Places where you might not be real comfortable. And yet, places that desperately need Jesus. Some of the disciples, as they heard this, they did. They brought the gospel to different cultures near them. For some of you, you need to step out of your comfort zone. You need to get involved in some type of ministry that will take you across the comfort zones that you are familiar with so that you can share the love of Jesus with people that are a little different than you. Maybe that's economically different than you, racially different than you, culturally different than you. Jesus mentions Judea. Now for the disciples, this was their homeland. This is what they knew. This was their language. This was what was comfortable and familiar. And some of them did. They brought the gospel to the Jews. Now for you and for me, I think of Judea sort of like our, our comfort zone, our, our local region. That could be New Lenox, Lockport, Mokina, Frankfurt, Orland Park, Joliet, and whatever I missed that's local. Guys, we live, these southwest suburbs, this is a place that desperately needs Jesus. We have so many non-practicing, non-religious. We have so many non-practicing former Catholics. We have many Muslims. People who do not know the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't have to go to the ends of the earth to be witnesses to Jesus. In some ways, the ends of the earth have come to us. Now, Jesus also mentions Jerusalem, final place. This is a place that is extremely familiar to the disciples. Not all of them were from Jerusalem, but as good practicing Jews, they, they spend a lot of time there. That, that's sort of their cultural hub. That's where their friends were. And these Jews, for the disciples, these Jews needed Jesus. Your Jerusalem is your ordinary life. For me, that's, that's the guys at the gym. That's my Jerusalem. That's my, my kids. They're, they're friends at their school. It's their parents that we have over for parties or whatever. Like the, that's my Jerusalem. Now, my Jerusalem is different than your Jerusalem. We might have some overlap. We might have some of the same friends or the same people that we know, but 
Each of us has our own separate Jerusalem. Do you see what I'm saying? It's your ordinary life. It's who you cross paths with. It's your coworkers, your, your soccer moms, you know, whoever it is. It's, it's the people around you, your neighbors. You are called to be witnesses in Jerusalem, in your own personal Jerusalem. What's familiar to you, the people in your world, and it's desperately needed. I, I think we live, some describe the culture that we live in now as an increasingly post-Christian culture. Have you heard this? So the idea is, kind of, we're maybe a little bit further behind in this than Europe, but we are moving as a culture in the United States to, to kind of believe that we have moved beyond, we've graduated from that archaic view of a Christian worldview, and we have more arrived in this, in this view of, of the world without God. That is the world that we are living in now, increasingly more and more every year. You wonder where we're going to be? Look at Europe. That's probably where we'll be in about 20 years. All the churches practically are empty in England. It's crazy. We have work to do here in our own Jerusalem. This was made very evident to me in a, a, a powerful moment that has impacted, still impacts me now. I, I did a mission trip to Kenya, Africa in 2004 and 2005. In 2004, my first trip to Kenya, you know, I'm, I'm being a good Christian. I'm taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, right? I'm flying back by myself, and I'm one of these guys that you don't want to sit by me on the airplane because I always strike up conversation. If you want peace and quiet, don't sit by me. But I love meeting new people and hearing their stories and just seeing what God's going to do with it, you know? So I'm, sit I'm sitting next to this man from India, older man, probably in his early 80s. And he speaks English a bit, though I kind of have to work to understand him. But as we begin talking early in the flight, it is evident quickly that he's a Christian. He, it's more evident probably than my own speech. I mean, he is talking about Jesus nonstop. And I, at one point I ask him, what are, you, what are you coming to America for? He said he's coming to be a missionary. To bring the gospel of Jesus to a lost people in America. The very nation that we sent missionaries to 100 years ago is sending them back to us now. We need Jesus here. We need to be witnesses here. I don't need to go to Kenya to be a witness for Jesus. Well, hopefully you're at least convinced this is important. But where do we start? Doesn't get, doesn't, we haven't really addressed the fear question, right? Well, here, here's the deal. It starts with friendship. It starts with friendship. What I would describe as missional friendship. I put those two words together. I think they're a really great partnering of words. Because if you have one without the other, something's wrong. Okay, so like if you have mission without friendship, then you are simply making someone a project. You're trying to convert them. You're talking at them. They're your mission. 
And that causes people to feel like a project, to feel judged. It doesn't go so well. But if you have friendship without mission, as a Christian, then you kind of have a compartmentalized life. You have your, your Christian life, your, your church Sunday Christian life, but then you are with your friends and, and there's no sense of mission whatsoever. Jesus is kind of out of the picture. That's why I came home so, to, so struggling on Thursday as I felt like that was my life that Thursday. I was, I was all friendship and no mission. And if that's where we're at, we're, we're really insincere. We're, not, we're, we're almost two different people. We're insincere and we're being disobedient to what Jesus has said. In fact, we're even being unloving because if we actually care about these friends and we don't bring them the most important truth that will change their eternity, what kind of friends are we? I think we have to evaluate our friendships and kind of honestly ask, do they have both? Is there a sense of mission, but is it grounded in true friendship? All right, so what do we do with this whole fear question? Uh, I think we have all kinds of fears. Let me, let me just name a few and see if any of these identify with you. Fear of not knowing what to say. Fear of not knowing how to bring it up. Fear of making things awkward. Any of these resonating so far? Fear of messing things up. Fear of pushing someone further away from Jesus. Fear of being judged by them. Fear of causing someone else to feel judged by us. Just to name a few. Jesus said quite a bit about fear. How do we overcome our fears? I'll tell you what, this, this is where I think the first half of this verse is so powerful said we're going to kind of start with the second half and then come back to the first. Here's what the first says. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You have the power of the Holy Spirit with you if you're a Christian. So really the second part of this verse hinges on the first part. Us being witnesses depends on us having the power of the Holy Spirit in us to do something that we can't do on our own, that we can't seem to overcome with our own fears. We don't have to because we have the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what compels us to go. It's, and it's not like, it doesn't say you might receive it. It doesn't say if you do the right things, you'll receive it. It says you will receive the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a non-negotiable. Man, can you be an extraordinary person powerful witness on your own i don't know but you can with the holy spirit's power that is so encouraging to me now again i i think about these disciples who heard these words who were eyewitnesses i want to take you back to something that jesus said to them in in luke chapter 8 or chapter 12 listen to what jesus says and I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. 
but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and rulers and authorities, do not be anxious, fear, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Think about how freeing this is. That addresses so many of our fears. Well, I don't know what to say. Well, Jesus said, you hear the promise that Jesus gave you? The Holy Spirit will give you the words to say. You don't have to come up with it. This is freeing. Jesus addresses so many of our fears in these promises right here. The Holy Spirit is with us. It isn't on you. Well, did the disciples take this to heart? We're reading Acts 1. If I just turn to Acts 4, a few, few moments later, listen to this scene. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were in the high priestly family. And when they did, and when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which, the builders which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated, common men. They were astonished. And they recognized they had been with Jesus. Shortly after, when they were ordered not to continue to speak about Jesus, they say, we cannot but, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Under great pressure, here's my point, Jesus promised the Holy Spirit will give them the words to say. He gives that promise to you. The disciples did it. They went out and were witnesses. They trusted God, and the Holy Spirit gave them the words to say. People saw it, said, these are just ordinary, uneducated guys. How are they able to say all these things? And they saw the power of God. See, when we actually trust the Lord and, and kind of depend on his power to be witnesses, people are going to see that. They're not going to be impressed by us. They're going to be impressed by him. It, to me, all of this is so freeing. It's so encouraging. It takes away a lot of the fear and the anxiety and the frustration and the disappointment that I have as I look back on my life in the ways that I haven't lived this out. It's because I've been trying to do it myself. I haven't trusted the Holy Spirit's power in my life. You don't have to come up with the perfect words. The Spirit is guiding you. I wonder sometimes if, you know, I heard someone say recently, uh, you just need to pray that God will give you opportunities to share the gospel. I thought to myself, that's dumb. 
God gives us opportunities all the time. My problem isn't having opportunities. My, my problem is actually 